Welcome, friends, to another episode of Build Up One Another, the podcast where we unpack the stories behind our key relationships with one another and how these impact where we go and shape who we become. I'm your host, Karen Temple. Today, our guest is a former music executive turned creative entrepreneur, consultant, and podcaster. He has built a boutique consulting company that helps commerce businesses grow their customer base to seven-figure revenues. He is also the founder and host of the Business Artist Podcast that embraces the art of business. He is Jan Melhos, and he is passionate about so many things, including independence, human connection, meditation, masculinity, and green tea. Jan, welcome to Build Up One Another. I am so delighted to have you on this podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really uh, looking forward to our interview, Karen. Wonderful. So Jan, I want to jump into this notion of the business artist podcast. On one hand, we have business. On the other hand, we have art. And to many people, they're thinking, well, this is oil and water. How do you make these mix? And at the same token, I love when somebody presents um, a juxtaposition of two things that don't at first seem to go together. So I'd love for you to just unpack the Business Artist Podcast and what you're looking to bring to the world through that medium. Yes, and it's exactly right what you're saying. I had the same fight in myself for a very long time. What it really means is that, um, you know, many people when they think about creativity or, or artists or an artist, they think about somebody who sings, who composes music, who paints, um, maybe an actor. But um, I think you can make art uh, through, through anything. And uh, business is actually a great way to art. I mean, Andy Warhol is saying the, great, the biggest art uh, there is, is, is business. Okay. And so take us through the creative process and how that is applied to business. Um, the creative process in business, I don't think it's really structured. Um, I think if you do it like an artist, uh, it's very important that you not you, that you don't try to solve everything with your mind. Um, for example, one one thing is you take relationships extremely important. Uh, the culture is extremely important. Um, then you you don't try to copy. If you do it in a creative way, you try to add something new. For example, I think Steve Jobs has, was a great business artist. You know that is one of the perfect examples. Also, maybe nowadays, Elon Musk is probably a business artist or Gary Vee. Um, if, you, if you have high integrity, if you wanna uh, create something, you don't wanna steal something or um, take something away from others or make others lose so you win, but you rather create something extra which nobody has thought about. Um, and that's a creative process of doing business, I would say. Absolutely. I love what you're what you're describing here about how there's an element that is unique and novel into what you're bringing forward into the world. And I think about when we think about business process, we often think, okay, step one, two, three, there's an SOP, it's in a document and, and everyone feels constrained by it, because all of a sudden you have to follow this process. Mm. The creative process is 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 so liberating. And I think to when you first mentioned the Business Artist Podcast and I started looking into it, it also made me realize that there's an artist in almost every profession, just like you were describing, whether you're bringing a creative solution to a problem. And it's interesting because, so in my world, I work with a lot of um, technology experts and Mm -hmm. sciences, the engineering, where you often, even if I ask some of those people, "Are are you a creative? They probably would say no. But it's interesting because when they're going through even their experiments, they'll be trying something and it's failing and it's failing and it's failing. And usually it's in a moment where they disengage their mind. They're either out jogging, they've gone for a swim, they've gone for a drive with their family that all of a sudden creative ideas start flooding into their mind. And then they go Mm -hmm. back to the problem that they're trying to solve with the new perspective. And it results in either creating a different experiment, um, approaching it with a different angle, and then poof, something comes out. And it's, it's, it's magical and it's so empowering, I think, that when we don't try to force a solution, 
but rather we put it aside, get some distance. And mm -hmm. so I love what you're describing in terms of the business artist podcast. So you said that you, want, you. always mm -hmm. wanted to be an artist. What kind of artist did you want to be yes. when you were younger? Yes, so when I was about uh, 15, 16, um, funny dance music was, was huge uh, in Germany. Yep. Where I was where I was born, grown up. And um, so we went to parties and DJs were the heroes. So we, we wanted to be DJs or live acts. And um, we, we started to buy some equipment and produce music. But then it was a problem to get known because nobody knew us. So nobody would book us on, on their events. And uh, then we organized our own events. And, and there were actually, after some time, great DJs there. There were there came many people. And we performed on our own events. And that's that's how we really started to, to be artists. I, I really could see into the music business. One of our singles was released on a small label, but then Sony Music picked it up from this label. And then I met a Pete in person. His job description at Sony Music was artist and repertoire manager. And th these are the people who sign artists and work with the artists. And when I discovered that this position exists, then I thought that's what I want to do. So, so take me back a little bit. I want to I want to go back a little bit because you talked about being mm -hmm. these young, bright, ambitious kids who wanted to be pop stars. You wanted to be musicians, and so you actually just did it. But not only did you do it, you did it big. You didn't just become a garage band, right, and play in your in your basement and rock on down there. You started reaching out to the top DJs, getting conversations with them. What inspired you just to reach for the stars? despite having no social proof and just go for it. Tell me about that. Our, our dream was that we are perform that we the superstar DJs. So when we made our own event, it was logic that we booked them. But then the problem was for us, oh, the location there, you have to pay a lot of money for this. And the DJs, they all want a lot of money to come. And you have to pay the hotel and you have to pay the flights and they want even food. And um, well, then we just asked people if they want to, if they can borrow us money and we approached companies to sponsor it. The president of our soccer club went along with this. So to drop down from the, from the vision to have top DJs on the event was never, was never something which came in our minds. You know? Right. So just the way the business was rolling that if you put up your hand and said, I want in, it's like, you got the money, you're in. Let's see what you can yes. do. Yes, exactly. Very cool, very cool. So you realized then after some time that you wanted to enter this whole industry on the business side and you mm -hmm. started creating um, companies and working the business angle. But then if I remember correctly, you that dream of mm -hmm. being that artist never really left your, your soul. Um, I went to London when I was 22 years old and I just um, knocked on every door of, of every record label to start working for them. And after some time, um, uh, Logic Records, which was a small uh, imprint of BMG, they offered me a, just a position as intern, so basically just Xeroxing the whole day and, and bringing tea and stuff. But I was listening to music all the time, and uh, then the team changed, a new boss came in, and he asked me, so what's your job? And I said, A&R, you know, Artist and Repertoire Manager. And I said, okay, come on, listen to music. And um, then I listened and uh, I recommended uh, tracks. And one of the first uh, songs I recommended actually became a big hit in, mm. in, in the UK. It was called Zend, uh, The Sounds of Wickedness. Probably not that now today, but that then at that time in the UK was a big hit. And then uh, I, I had trust and I built up a small sub-label in a niche uh, niche. Um, music style called Two Step, and it was Speed Garage music, which was big in, in the UK. And um, after some time, um, the mother label or the mother company of BMG was in Germany. Um, and they asked me if I could come to Germany. And, and I did. And I started a label there, a hip hop label, which, which uh, where I needed a lot of time. In the beginning, every artist I signed flopped. But after two years, two and a half years, the first successes came. and. Um, and I was very successful. I don't know why, but to feel, well, now why, I know why actually. I felt empty and stressed uh, and a lot in my mind. The label that I don't want to continue. Um, and I, I, in a one year period, I overhanded the whole operations to, to, some, to other people. Did my MBA in Australia and went surfing. And I thought a lot about what I was doing, what I want to do. 
and I became more spiritual a little bit, little bit as well with uh, surfing and uh, but I didn't I didn't I wasn't really able to figure out what what I really want what really makes me happy so it was a little bit for the lack of a better vision that I said okay why did you start the music business because of music you, you wanted to be an artist so do it now did you feel some sort of angst then that made you say okay I'm going to stop on the music and I'm going to go to Australia and just get centered and explore another, go a bit deeper in terms of a level of self-awareness, that relationship with yourself. What mm -hmm. was it tension that, or what was it that triggered you to say, okay, I'm gonna stop music for a bit? It was uh, the feeling that every day is the same in a way. Mm -hmm. And um, and then also I felt disconnected to the other people in the, in the record company. I mean, it was a huge company, very corporate. Um, I felt a bit disconnected there and um, and also I had a lot of tension and pressure and stress which I didn't know how to, how to handle work related, related. yeah, yeah. It's also you... not that easy to to because the the record company these are huge corporate companies often owned by by other corporations and their their main goal is obviously to the bottom line and not the creativity and then you have the artists and it's it's their life it's all about their art and uh, these are two different goals and and i was exactly in the position where i was uh, mediating between those two and so in a way to make the artist happy and make the record company happy to find this way and i think i was probably a little bit too young I see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is a difficult position to be between two stakeholders who have very different um, drivers, right? Yes. Especially at a values base. So one is being creative yeah. and the other one's trying to drive money and, and having that um, balance where you're able to satisfy the needs of the artists and yet still make money. That's, that's very difficult. It's a very difficult position. And normally people who are maybe 10, 12 years older are in this position often. So I think I was a bit young and maybe also a bit unprepared for it, um, for success. I was also unprepared for success. So also my success was a bit frightening for me um, because I was, I always, you know, was like a little bit like a hungry street kid always and, and wanted to have the big, uh, huge success. And then when it came, I didn't know how to, how to handle it that well also. Right, right. So you were in Australia and then you said, okay, you're going to go back to the music world. Yes, back to the music world, but uh, with two big, big changes. So first of all, I always worked for other companies. Although I founded this label and developed it, I didn't own it. Uh, it was owned by BMG. And then later Sony, when Sony bought BMG. And, um, and this time I wanted not to develop other artists, but now I said, okay, now I do it myself. So these were the two changes so i founded my own label and uh, then uh, me and my wife we've been in france and um, there was a huge success with slam poetry at this time which was basically spoken word on music and uh, grand corps malade was like a french artist who was hugely successful and then i just thought okay i'll, I'll do this in germany it wasn't probably i didn't answer the right questions i didn't you know i didn't come from the why or something it was just what, what appeared to be, okay, that could be a good way for me to go now. So, so I did it and um, through my connections and because I, I was quite known in the German music business, even Universal Music um, signed me and uh, put money behind it. And uh, it took me about a half a year to produce it and uh, release my album. But then um, it was a total disaster, you know, it was, um, financially and from the sales didn't sell at all and and then i thought okay i'm not going to do this so i'm not an artist and then i kind of killed the artist myself and said okay you're a businessman that's it right so you, you almost took that dichotomy and chose yeah. an or an or paradigm right an a or b rather than an and right um yes. that's that's tough right when we put ourselves out on a limb we put our heart on a sleeve and we have a public failure it can really wreak havoc with our sense of identity, our sense of self, our sense of value. It was like a big crisis. It was, for me, it was really tough and I needed years to, to get out of it. Um, it was emotionally um, made me 
uncertain, but I think my confidence was really, really tough. I lost a lot of my confidence. And um, so then I started to to keep working for, for record labels. But then I said, I don't want to be so involved with the artists, so, so attached with the artists anymore. So I went more to marketing artists instead of signing and, and developing the music. Great friends at this time, but I never could enjoy it. I was always felt like I'm separated from life, really. I couldn't feel life. I felt like in a box in this time. That's um, that, yeah. That's really that's really a, a tough journey. Um, and yes. I think often in life where we have visions of where we want to go, and then we we realize that it's not always possible possible to be everything that we want to be or everything that we think we could be initially, right? Mm -hmm. And when we meet that yeah. resistance yeah. and that failure we can go back into ourselves and compromise and opt out from pursuing where we where we can go in life. Sometimes in life, it's interesting. I, I feel that there's so much pressure with society that we are, we have all these heroes, if you want to call them that, right? These people that people idolize because they're famous, because they are so good at their craft, be it in music, be it in sports, be it in business. And they're up on a pedestal and we don't really see the, how they got there. We just see that that's the result. And we don't realize that they're one in thousands, hundreds of thousands. Maybe they're one in a million in, in reality, mm -hmm. right? And that mm -hmm. there are all these other people around them that can help them reach that. And that those people also have value. So as you're working with these artists and you're, you're saying to yourself now, I'm not an artist, but I'm, I can be part of that person's journey in helping them to become an artist. Did you have that part or it was just too painful that you were now just doing straight marketing, acting in a business function separate from the artist and you didn't have that human connection to the artist that you so grew up so admiring? Yeah. No, at this time I, I didn't, I mean, before in my, in the job before I had very strong connections to every artist and I could get, get satisfaction in helping them to create their vision so that was uh, before no problem for me and, and make also had some satisfaction but now in this uh, after that uh, after i experienced this crisis i didn't i wasn't able to build up any relationship to the artist really i really kept away from it and um, i had some also it, the relationship with artists can also be very uh, tough because they often call you then at 10 o'clock in the evening or 10 30 <laughs> with problems and or at the weekend and I can remember that uh, when I was uh, really working with them then often my girlfriend was next to me and I was always on the phone always on the phone she always was standing to me next and I was on the phone so it was also that that I thought okay this time I take it a bit easier and don't go in 100% with everything I have you know so I try to do it like on a 70% basis more and, and I wasn't interested in, in the connections but still it didn't make me happy mm. there was something inside you that was still wrestling it was creativity i think i have to express myself it was always artistic things and then um in the um then i got an offer from tidal music tidal is something like the like spotify it's a streaming service but they have higher audio quality and today it's owned by jay-z and some other artists and they uh, launched in germany in 2000 12 and they offered me to be managing director for germany and i accepted it the product doesn't speak it doesn't have an opinion so i could be far more creative and use my creativity far more because uh, you don't have to ask the artist okay do you think it's good for you and now i have a better idea it's right now the product just accepted so then i felt I, like a, a rush of creativity was was uh, coming in me and that's the first time when i when i got the idea that i might be that the business might be my art and uh, so I've only been there like six months or so. And then I was sure, okay, again, I tried to do my own company. And um, yeah, so after one year I left and I started my own company and I was very, very positive that, that I will be this time successful. I won't do the same mistakes again. And then I felt really confident again. Okay, yet now you know what your thing is. You know? Amazing, amazing. And I often think too that as um, so many industries become disrupted, where we had before the large behemoths who controlled the channels to the market and all the artists had to go through the BMGs and the Sonys yes. of the world. Now that's being disrupted 
And so you have um, creatives totally. across mm-hmm. all disciplines who are out there and the connection to the consumer is just so much more direct. And I think what you're doing with the Business Artist Podcast is brilliant. It's so timely because when people are out there doing their craft, they also are often missing that business element. How can they put their art out there and be able to still wrap a business around it? Because ultimately, back to Andy Warhol, where business is the Mm -hmm. ultimate art form thing. When you create something that the world values so much that they give their time, and then the next level, they're starting to give you the money for it because you're, you're doing something, you're either enriching their life, you're solving a problem at the end of the day. And if you can bring all those elements together, then that creative art form can go into the world, as I say, technology experts, scientists, engineers, yes. and whatnot. And they usually start off by saying, well, I, you know, I just want to contribute to society. And I'll say to them, well, that's, that's wonderful, that's noble. But if this solution is actually going to make a difference in the world, we need to put it around a business because that's the conduit where we're able to bring together the legs of a, of, a, of a business that will enable that to have an enduring effect. So if those mm-hmm. famous artists are only singing in their basement, then they're depriving the whole world of their Absolutely. creativity and their beauty. Yes. And by offering it, out there and if people value it then you have that exchange right so at the end of the day that art form of creating and disseminating and creating this the operations into to support that creativity is the business and i think you're in a fabulous moment in history to do that across so many so many disciplines i'm really excited for you yes thank you Thank you. I'm I'm excited myself too. And <laughs> I, I mean, we have to see. We have to say it's uh, it's happening right now. I mean, it was really before that only musicians or actors were pop stars, but nowadays through through YouTube and and social media, we have people who are selling wine who are pop stars. People who do games, uh, playing games, are pop stars. People who do education, teachers can be pop stars nowadays. And so I want to shift gears because music is part of your life. Yep. Being an artist is an even bigger part of your life. And, and you are one of these people who have so many different interests. So I want to jump into some of those interests and because they really um, play to one of the things I'm really passionate about, and that's our relationships with one another. You were um, talking about the LA Summit and you attended a workshop on masculinity. At the masculinity workshop, um, you, I really had to go out of my comfort zone. Um, one one thing we did, for example, was that there was a row of men, and uh, two meters opposite was another row of men. So we looked into each other's eyes, and then behind us were women, and they just listened to what what we said. And then the instructor said, "Okay, now the first row has to tell the others a secret about them, which they don't tell to to anybody else, and then vice versa." And the women were just listening. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think one uh, thing was that you hug a man. For like a little bit longer than you normally would right um and and more other stuff so it was going um be open to other men everybody i talk to and even people who you know do very manly stuff uh, normally and i'm also from the hip-hop uh, um i don't know i grew up in hip-hop surroundings so but everybody said it was a great experience and, and for me too and uh, you really uh, could feel in my whole body that I was more relaxed and, and easygoing. So just after that, I tried to find out more about it. And um, there, are, I also did um, uh, anger workshop, for example. So one thing is also to, to um, embrace your anger and uh, accept it. And uh, it helped me a lot in, in, in growing, I think, since then. And there is like a like a real movement of of um, some call it sacred masculinity um, or the new masculinity. So it's it's not the old school. Um, I'm better than you or, or this like you know this old male archetype. Mm. It is more open, more more showing vulnerability, showing your feelings, being in your body, but definitely you're still a warrior, you're, you're looking for freedom. So it's not, definitely doesn't take away any, any masculinity. 
I think it's more healthy and it frees you from a lot of fears and um, unhealthy behaviors for yourself and for others. Mm -hmm. That that's I'm so glad that you went into this because um, I I truly believe that the conversation on masculinity and male male bonding has has been lacking for so many years. Mm-hmm. We still do have such an archetype with the alpha male and what that looks like and what that feels like. And where does that leave all the other men if you're not that alpha man? Um, I often, you know, the relationships between men is, is, is something that I'm very curious about. And when I think about groups of men acting together, so be it in, let's, let's say, a highly competitive sport. So football, basketball, soccer, whatever you want to call it. And they're in a team. Mm-hmm. And how they are yeah. working together. There's complementary positions, strengths, weaknesses. But they're playing as a team because they only by playing as a team are you going to win. Similarly with mm-hmm. military, for example. There, the stakes are life and death, right? You're, you're relying on your mm-hmm. brothers, to go into battle and with trust that they're going to have your back and you're going to have their back. Where else in, in our society can you get a group of guys who uh, slap each other on their butts and that's all good because they've got that bond. And that's a good mm-hmm. thing. And it's, great I, thing, yes. it, it's fabulous. So, so women, women have their social constructs when they come together and that's, that's a, that's a whole other kettle of fish, but I see in some parts of the world where men are comfortable being vulnerable, it really can build that strong, enduring relationship so that they have one another and they're not in a position where their only major bond is to a female, for example, assuming they're heterosexual. When you mentioned masculinity 2.0, I, I think this is where the world's going and I think the world will be such a more beautiful and healthier place if men can be men and not be emasculated there's i mean how many years of biology is there behind us no and uh, i think um there are like uh, different streams so one is the strong feminism which um has a lot of i think it's it's uh, important and it's good. I mean, I have a 10 year old daughter and I'm happy that women are empowered. And, and now, nowadays, I think in the last years, there are so more, far more female entrepreneurs you can see. And um, uh, I, I like that. And uh, women get more confident. But on the other hand, um, there's also the stream that, that this um, could go in the direction that uh, the polarity uh, gets lost between men and women and and often for example if i'm in scandinavia i sometimes have the feeling that the women are more masculine and the men are more more feminine in a way Mm. in their behavior not in the way they look i mean the men are very strong and and tall but i don't know in their behavior so it's i think it's it's also we have to be very conscious um, that it doesn't go in the wrong direction and i think what men can do is to be aware and uh, and develop themselves and be vulnerable and bond with other men but also be men be strong be alpha males if doesn't mean that everybody else has to be a beta male but it's not bad if you lead right you can be a very good leader i think and um yeah i think the polarity is also important for couples to to be happy i i, I hear you i think in every human there's the masculine and the feminine Yes, for sure. And when we are comfortable in where that is right for us, and we can be who we're supposed to be in this world, it's extremely liberating and fulfilling. Um, there's And so there's going to be a distribution across, say, a population of females. There will be some females who are more masculine and some that are super feminine. Mm-hmm. And similarly for, for the male. And I think might that, be, yeah, it might be that the that the polarity can also work in a different way. Of course, I, I agree with you. And and so just um, go deeper into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it could be. I mean, I read, for example, the book. Um, I think it was the way of the superior man by David Data, or it was also Norman, Mister Nice Guy. I don't know which one of those two books, but there he said there are also couples where the female is, has a strong masculine and the man has a strong 
feminine and that could also work, for example. Absolutely. I'm seeing yeah. more and more examples where there'll be a, for example, a female who's, who's out there and she's the breadwinner. She's playing mm -hmm. that classic role and he is staying home and raising the children. And that's just simply where they're both meant to be. And they have a, mm -hmm. they have beautiful marriages. When I see men interacting and, and again, I could be way off here, Jan, but I see there's a way for men to recognize strengths and there's a way of acknowledging rank and what I call rank and file within their pack and they can still operate as a pack. And there's this notion mm -hmm. that they will help each other with women. I've also seen cases and these are generalizations. So for all you out there who are going to give me a mouthful after this podcast, <laughs> first of all, I welcome it because one of the things I really want to do on this podcast is have different opinions, different views, different perspectives presenting so that we can have open and transparent conversations about issues that are sometimes quite contentious in, in our societies. But when women get together, there still is this competitiveness within the pack, as mm -hmm. though if one woman's doing it, others might be prevented. There's always a, a bit of a lead. But it's, it's done in a way that, from my experience, excludes others, other women, which yes. I don't think is healthy. So I think we still have a lot of unpacking to go when it, when it comes to our relationships as men and women, as the masculine and feminine in each of us and then also in the workplace. Now, I have a question to ask you on this and I'd love yes, to yes. hear what you think. Okay, so um, in the school system, girls typically are outperforming boys, okay? You have a very structured environment mm -hmm. there. Once they get onto the, into the working world, to me, that feels more like the schoolyard, right? Where mm -hmm. it's, it's the market. You have to figure mm -hmm. out how to navigate. You have to figure out how to nurture allies, navigate your adversaries. And how, because a lot of roles that I've seen are still very male dominated, I'm always curious how, how men view women when they enter the schoolyard um, of mm -hmm. the corporate world, for example. Mm -hmm. Because biologically, men are programmed most of their lives to see to see a woman and they see them within a certain frame. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what's your observations of women in a corporate environment and that gender relationship when we think about masculinity, femininity, and maybe conscious or unconscious sexuality comes in here too? But I'm mm -hmm. just going to hear what your thoughts are, if you have any. Yes, I have. I have many. So what you said about uh, women not sticking together that much when they're in the pack, I, I'm observing too. What I really see, not very often, some, I have some examples, but most of the time, women in higher positions, they don't help each other. You know, that's what I'm observing. I, I know one example where it's working really well, but very often, if a woman is in a higher position, she doesn't help the other woman, she rather sticks with a man. And um, so it's often in a, in a big leader circle that there's only one woman. And um, it's probably often one who's very good political and now how to, how to place her role. And, um, and from a man's perspective, um, it's even often that, that they try to keep it only men. And that's because the language totally changes when one woman is there. So everything changes uh, as soon as one woman is there. And then if there are more than even, even you can't, you cannot say the same words, you cannot make the same jokes. Um, everything is different. Also, then there might be, and then maybe some unconscious sexuality comes in as well. Then there might also be that the man, if there's a very attractive woman, for example, that the men try to impress her. So there's also a different dynamic around the men. And that is, I think, one of the, so, so I think the two reasons why in leadership positions are many men is one, because women uh, are not that good in working together and keeping together as men. Men really help each other more. And the second thing is that the whole dynamics change and men are afraid of this, I think. I think they're afraid that the, um, that the yard changes into the school room <laughs> as soon as the women <laughs> are in, you know what I mean? Well, we, none of us want to be back at school, that's for sure. Would you say that the women who are able to advance in their careers, but because they, they know how to play ball with the boys? Yes. 
Yeah, definitely. That's uh, that's it. The, the women I see who are doing this, but I have to say one important thing. I think uh, think it's it's more a generation which is a little bit uh, maybe around 35 and older, where I can see this. I think the young people coming in will change everything. Uh, I don't think it will it will stay like this. I think it will change a lot. But um, for the people who are right now in leadership positions, I think it's still. Is like it's like this, like I described. But I think the new generation will change. I mean, I see in, in, on Instagram, for example, so many uh, women working together, working in networks, um, helping each other, supporting each other. The sisterhood, you know, the sisterhood between women is embraced far more, and I think that's very, very important. And so I, I think there's we we will see a big change coming up. I, I do too, and I'm so glad you you brought that up. When I look at people who are under 30 years of age, I'm seeing friends, friends between um, two women, friends between two guys, and I'm also seeing friendships between guys and girls. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're moving into a, a new era of those relationships where we're able to mix and mingle at a more intimate level, whereas before it was still fairly, the guys stick with the guys unless they were attracted to a woman. Mm -hmm. And the girls stuck with the girls unless a guy was reaching out to them. Yes. And just, and these things Absolutely. take time. And this is one of the things that I often, like, like we're really, we're really talking about um, an evolution of culture and human, human interactions and dynamics. And there were good reasons why 2000 years ago, um, we may have formed our, our, our societies, our communities in a certain way. And that today this is evolving and that it can't just be changed like from inside out as opposed to, don't get me wrong, I think certain legislation and policies are good in terms of moving us forward, but I really like it when it's a heart-centered approach, when we look out into the world and realize that me there's too. humanity here. So <laughs> we talked about the energy within ourselves. I want to move on to, um, and we've talked a lot about your trajectory in life, your own journey. I want to move on to what I often call on this podcast, the heroes on your sideline the people who you may have had a very long and deep relationship, or they might be people who were transitory. They came into your life for a brief period, but left ripples and fingerprints on your heart that ultimately changed, the, changed your perspective in a profound way and maybe even changed the trajectory of your life. Can you share a little bit about who those people are and, and what the impact they had and are having on you? Yeah, you know, for me, that's not an easy question. I mean, all my life, I was really looking for a mentor. It was really tough for me to find somebody, but I couldn't, I couldn't find somebody I could look up to who would coach me. It's just, on, honestly, it's only recently since I discovered podcasts and long-form interviews, and I started to listen to people who also had, an, had like the will to, to help people to to get out of their daily routines and and uh, become more committed to excellence or to be more conscious like people like for example brian rose with his london real podcast or robin sharma or lewis house that's the first time when when i started to to look up to other people and um and try to to learn from them and to take over what they can teach me so Right now, I would say they really changed my lives, although I don't even know them personally, but they really changed my lives and um, have a great effect on me. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how we can have be profoundly impacted by people that we can't touch and feel and look into their eyes. And just yeah. the name of the internet is a lot enabled like-minded souls to find each other. When you were working so closely with the artists and working with some really famous people did you come away without looking through rose-colored glasses to sort of say hey these are these are normal people these are everyday people but they excel beyond belief in their art for example or did you come away saying oh my gosh these people on so many levels are just crushing it and they're known for their for their artistic creations well that's a good question um so with the artists I really worked close with, I think they were just, um, they, some of them worked really hard. Some of them didn't work that hard, but they were just 
very good in what they were doing, but sometimes it's really tough to know how they gained this competitive edge. Uh, you see the success, you see um, how, how much they give to people, you see how, 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 much, how many people love them, but you don't know. I, I, sometimes, honestly, I couldn't tell you, okay, he's working 28 hours <laughs> in 24 hours, or he's uh, just uh, practicing his, uh, his instrument like every day from, from the beginning to the end. Sometimes I hear this about people and yeah, of course he's so successful because he's just outworking everybody else or because he's uh, some, so much commitment or so much leadership. But, but in my personal life, I saw many successful people where I couldn't really point and say, yes, of course he is so successful because he just works so much. Sometimes it was a bit of a, of a you know, miracle why. I think the most impressive thing actually for me was if totally, like for example, David Guetta. David Guetta is uh, one of the most successful DJs in the world. He's in every country of the world very well known. When he comes only on his own, he uh, almost a whole stadium would be full. Mm -hmm. But when, when you meet him and talk to him, he's just like a normal person. You can sit in a restaurant on the table and just chat with you. And that was for me actually the most impressive thing. Other artists, for example, they were very successful, but they, they were not able anymore to interact with society. They needed 10 people around them to just bring them from one room to the other. Mm -hmm. And then I felt even a bit sorry for them, although they had all this uh, money and, and love from the people and success, but I felt rather sorry for them. Yeah. These were more the, more the things I noticed than a special talent or like outworking others. Yeah, that, that, those are really actually insightful. Often it's not who works the most, it's who's able to resonate or connect with the audience. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always correlate to how much you work. No. It's, it's how you're able to connect. And it's interesting too, because as one becomes famous, as some of these musicians are, there is also the risk that they lose their sense of identity as to who they are when they're not on stage. So they become their brand mm -hmm. um, so much so that when they look in the mirror, they may no longer recognize themselves. Whereas the, there are other artists and other um, exceptional people who at the end of the day, don't lose track of mm. who they are. Yes. Uh, I, I can see the, the brand thing, which you mentioned, you can see this very, very often and it's a big, big danger. Um, so every young person i can only tell them if you get into the show business and today show business starts already with your instagram profile to be very very aware to with it and to separate uh, yourself from the brand which is out there it's just recently actually on brian rose show there was a guy i think jonathan hyde and he talked about that we can observe a high increase of anxiety even of su suicidal tendencies in teenagers since um the first generation who had in their, who started to be in social media at the age of 10. So I think 2013 or something, exactly since this point, since, since these people became teenagers, we can see a high increase in this. And I think one, one very important element of this is that they see themselves as a brand which is out there on Instagram or, or they compare their inner self with the other brands which are out on Instagram. Instagram, In particular for women, because you mentioned this men-women thing, he mentioned that men are wild and aggressive physically, but socially they are kind of, they don't really get a lot, but, but women, they are socially very aware, very advanced, and, and their aggressiveness is in social. Mm -hmm. So like, are you part of our group? Are you not part of our group? Do I like you? Do I not like you? I like you, yes, but now I like you not. And uh, through this, the women uh, experience, or the little girls actually experience far more anxiety, far more depression through this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, the comparison culture has really wrecked havoc with our sense of worth and identity. Going back just briefly to when you um, had what you called your, your big failure, and, and it, mm -hmm. I mean, that's really public. I imagine that that's, a, that's yes. a topic that if you can unpack that experience and how you regained your sense of self, your confidence, and your journey to where you are today would be something that could, without doubt, save lives. I hope so. 
so I, I just want to ask you one last question before we before we start wrapping up here. Talk yes. to me a little bit about your thoughts about time and independence. Time and independence mm -hmm. in relation to to each other, you mean, or to life? Core element, and if you're not independent, if you're dependent on other people, it's very hard to have a happy and satisfied life. So, so I think independence is the, is a core element for us as men, necessarily as men. For women, maybe you can tell me better than I know. Um, I know for men, it is very important to be independent. I think I think all humans, because of the artist in all of us, mm -hmm. require a level of autonomy and agency. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. So Jan, I, I see you are a very self-aware man who is unleashing the artist. I also know that you are somebody who doesn't like to waste time. How do we go through life and not waste time? And how do we also go through life and create enough random time for those random creative process to, to unfold? That's a very, very good question. You know, I wasted a lot of time in my life with um, distractions. I think we waste a lot of time if we are not aware of our feelings and um, if we don't feel our feelings and we try to distract ourselves from our feelings with, you know, browsing in the internet, playing games, watching one Netflix series after the other. And it's, it's more that we are, for many people, including me, it's very difficult to just lay on the sofa and do nothing. Many people, after two minutes, they stand up and they have to do something because it's just so difficult to just be with yourself because then the feelings come up and you have to face them and, them and you might have to experience the feelings as well before they go away. And when we don't do that uh, and distract ourselves, they will always be there and, and it, can, it can even um, extend into sickness. And yeah, so, so I think distraction is one of the most common things to waste your life, waste your time. Another thing is if you go in the wrong direction, which is not your purpose, um, and you didn't answer the why question, then you can run for years in one direction. And then just to figure out after that, that uh, it was not what you were made for. And then you start from the beginning. But even that is life and is possible. And most of us have to go through it at one stage. Mm. And you know, one of my challenges is that I'm, I'm always had the goal to to be as time independent as possible. So I'm very effective, very efficient. And I created often in my life a scenario where I have a lot of free time uh, and this random time to be creative. But then when I had this time, I felt it more with emptiness than with uh, something meaningful. So I had to learn how, what to do then in the whole freedom I create, what to do then. And that's actually one of the reasons I'm doing my podcast that's a constant struggle for me to get out of my comfort zone and use the free time I create to do something meaningful. Mm -hmm. And I, what, what also is uh, very helpful in, in creating those, those uh, what you talked about, random times when you can be creative is, I think, scheduling. But if you schedule your day or even your week and fill it with things you definitely do, but also with maybe three hours of, of nothing. I love that idea. Because I feel that life is a journey and there are times where we have great clarity and we can get on the Audubon and really crush it and get stuff done. And then there are other times where we're either, we feel like the surroundings are no longer familiar and we have to realize that we're, we're not lost at that moment, but maybe it's better to, let's stand still, let's stand where we are and have that more creative process and that way of looking into ourselves and in our, in our surroundings. I love the idea of blocking that because otherwise it's life and time is like water in a vessel. It will fill, it will fill it up. And by blocking that time and doing something where you can either relax your brain or put your brain in a meditative state it's unbelievable the clarity and the creation that can come. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. 
So Jan, I want to thank you. I want to honor you and acknowledge you for sharing your journey. We have covered so many aspects of our relationships with one another. You have shared what is it like to work so closely with famous artists, what it's like to work in a corporate environment. You have talked about your own relationship with yourself through the heights and the lows and the moments where you feel that you've lost sense of who you are. And you've also shared what it felt like to go through what was a fairly big public failure. Um, that is vulnerability and, call and courage in such a beautiful way. And then we even got into that sticky territory of men and men, women and women and women and men, and just how colorful and crazy those relationships are. <laughs> yes. So I, I really thank you. Jan, where can people find you? Yes, first of all, I want to thank you for the interview and for the questions you asked. Uh, it's also always, uh, if somebody asks interesting and deep questions, the journey and the answers I give myself are always also uh, an experience. People can find me on Instagram, just at Jan Melhos. Also on my website, www.janmehlhose.com. On Facebook, I'm the real Jan Melhos because Jan Melhos, somebody has already taken. I think these are the best destinations. And of course, most important, my podcast, the Business Artist Podcast. Wonderful. We are going to include show notes down below to make it super easy for everybody listening to this podcast to be able to find you. I have no doubt that men and women are going to be following you and you are going to make their lives richer. And as I said before, I believe that you are going to have a profound impact on many, many people. So listeners, be the artist in your relationships, in your business relationships, in your personal relationships. Ultimately, we are humans interacting with other humans. By showing up and pouring into one another, we can merge our jet streams and do magical things together. We would love to know what you thought of this podcast. Let us know by rating, sharing, reviewing, subscribing, and following us on Apple Podcasts. All the links are down below. So until next time, be well, my friend, and go build up one another.